0: Hello, this is Dr. Dan Guerra coming to you from Authentic Biochemistry Studios. It's the 21st of January, 2020. We've been talking about autoimmune disease associated with intracellular metabolism, particularly in immune cells. We've been talking about T lymphocytes and also about their interaction with plasma cells, uh, that is, IgG producing plasma cells, the activation thereof, which can induce a hyper inflammatory response in certain tissue beds, particularly in the central nervous system, which is what we're focusing on in these lectures. I mentioned to you that there are B-cell lymphoma proteins, such as the BCL1X and the MCL1, and that those proteins are associated with anti or pro apoptosis depending upon the splice variant that's made, in the, particularly in either the neuron or in the glia that are associated with neurons in the central nervous system. And this, depending on spice variation, can either induce apoptosis or inhibit it. And with infiltrating T lymphocytes, if apoptosis is induced, you're going to have a standing down of an inflammatory response. However, if apoptosis itself is knocked down, then those T lymphocytes can be activated and proliferate, and you get a full blown immune response in the central nervous system. And that can be associated with resident T follicular cells as as well as T cells, which are resident and memory origin. And those cells can be triggered by autoantigens in the central nervous system that are actually mimics of antigens that were previously presented to these T resident memory cells that erstwhile infiltrated to the CNS through the blood-brain barrier through mechanisms I talked about before uh, including alterations of channel conduction, and that once those um, T-cells are now activated by the errant host antigen mimicry, and then you have a turning uh, off or standing down of the apoptotic signal via that BCL protein complex that you end up with auto autoinflammation. So right now I'm going to continue that line of discussion, inquiry, by getting deeply involved and deeply integrated into Um, what's going on in terms of cellular metabolism and not just metabolism but those aspects of lipids and even amino acid turnover as associated with folic acid metabolism that is linked up to this uh, activation or deactivation via the apathetic pathway in T lymphocytes infiltrated into into the blood brain past the blood brain barrier into the central nervous system so (laughs) it was a paper published in Frontiers in Neurology in July of 2019, uh, and the uh, uh, actual uh, citation for that is volume 10, page 807. So let's start with that. I'm going to summarize what that paper is about, and we're going to go into some detail, and we're going to understand what this paper is about from 2019 by going back and looking at previously published work. So let's get, let's get started with this uh, overall discussion. Aging over 65, any, anytime you age over 65, basically doubles the risk for Alzheimer's disease. But that doesn't require, that, <coughs> that particular fact doesn't require that aging is causal or even directly promotive of uh, AD because senescence itself, that is aging, cellular aging, Is non uniform, uh, and there's a genetic predisposition coupled with an epigenetic, what I call an intrusion. And both of those actually are environment and immune dependent predicates. So, like essentially all human disease sequelae, dyslipidemia, which could be one of these environmental components, that is intracellular environmental components, dyslipidemia can be directly correlated and thus apprehend. The incidence of Alzheimer's disease. For example, type 2 diabetes-related insulin resistance is associated with dyslipidemia, and that results in increased hepatic ceramide generation. We talked about ceramide before, that's a sphingolipid. And ceramide generation can induce hepatic steatosis. Steatosis just means an excessive amount of lipid accumulation in the form of triacylglycerol. And the reason you get excessive triacylglycerol accumulation in the hepatocyte because of insulin resistance is because you have enhanced glucose infiltration into the hepatocytes because of peripheral insulin resistance. More circulating insulin, I mean more circulating glucose because of insulin resistance, that glucose ends up going back to the liver. And the glucose is then converted via glycolysis and then the TCA cycle and citrate uh, production. Then ATP citrate lies generating acetyl CoA and OAA into the cytoplasm in the hepatocyte. Then that acetyl CoA going on to make fatty acid. Fatty acid then being esterified to the glycerol backbone making tricyglycerol. That's how you get um, steatosis in the liver. The trisoglycerol biosynthesis because of an increase of flux of glucose into the liver, parenchyma. Okay, see, that's, that's how that occurs. That's a direct biochemical connection. At any rate, it's all induced by insulin resistance, which can be associated with obesity and type two diabetes. So that basically induces a pro-inflammatory cytokine activation, <coughs> excuse me, which is mediated by the increased ceramide production. And then that leads to full-blown hepatitis or inflammatory liver disease. So cytotoxic ceramides and all those related molecules generated in the liver can actually promote insulin resistance because they traffic through circulation and they can cause injury and cell death because they induce apoptosis. So that's all induced initially by a local liver inflammatory response. And because of the hydrophobic nature of ceramide, it can easily cross the blood-brain barrier and then it can become neurotoxic. So, it has no problem, it doesn't need any carrier proteins, and because it's a lipid, it just moves freely through it. So, that's how you get insulin signaling <clears throat> from the liver to the brain and back again. All of that then generating pro inflammatory cytokine production in the central nervous system, as well, of course, in the, uh, in the liver. That can redouble the, all those events, that, that cyclical pattern of pathology, uh, which it basically results in neurodegeneration. That their neurodegeneration is associated with oxidative stress because of ceramide generation. And that potentiates this brain insulin resistance paradigm, which leads to apoptosis, myelin degeneration, neuroinflammation, and yes, in some uh, systems, Alzheimer's disease. Now, here's a new ripple. Increased homocysteine levels are also a risk factor for AD pathology. So why is that? Homocysteine is an amino acid catabolic product, which is involved in folate acid metabolism, which I'm going to get to in a minute. So it looks like there's a homocysteine ceramide axis of signaling, and that axis is a pathophysiological one that results in Alzheimer's disease. So it suggests that the homocysteine toxicity could be partly mediated by intracellular ceramide accumulation. And <clears throat> how does that happen? Okay. So we need to know that. All right, so so I went to the literature, and I found a paper published in a journal called Kidney International, volume 66. This came out in November 2004, page 1977 to 1987. Now, in this paper, they give you a proposed mechanism of how homocysteine can be involved in Ceramide increase, which can then be involved in the production of reactive oxygen, which can induce a hypersensitive response, leading then to auto inflammation. So, L homocysteine activates ceramide synthase. You get de novo synthesis of ceramide. Remember, that's adding the fatty acid to the amide linkage. The nitrogen atom coming directly from the serine. Serine is needed for the biosynthesis of ceramide. That's important. I'll show you in a moment. That's going to link back to homocysteine. Anyways, once you make ceramide then, it activates something called the uh, G protein um, exchange factor or guanine nucleotide exchange factor, also known as GEF. So GEF um, adds GTP to the RAC protein and removes GDP. So now you have a RAC GTP, which activates an enzyme called NADPH oxidase, and when that is activated, it makes superoxide. Okay, so you have a reactive oxygen species being synthesized directly in situ in the central nervous system. Then, the, the, uh, then there's another protein called GAP, which is the GTPase activating protein, <clears throat> which will then remove the phosphate from GTP, make GDP, make RAP GDP. And as long as ceramide is constantly activating that uh, guanine nucleotide exchange factor, the GAF. You're going to pull off GDP, put on GTP, trigger the rack GTP to induce NADPH oxidase, oxidase making more superoxide. So that's how that how, that's how those two things are coupled. Homocysteine activated the ceramide synthase, giving you the ceramide. Ceramide then inducing the production of superoxide. So next question you might have: How does homocysteine build up? Going back now to the Frontier's Neurology paper, the 31st of July, 2019, just about uh, six months ago, this came out. So again, real quickly through the pathway, sphingosine can be phosphorylated, sphingosine 1-phosphate, and it can be degraded via lice reactions, ultimately all the way down to hexadecinal and phosphoethanolamine. However, sphingosine can also be uh, reacted on with uh, ceramide synthase. Remember, there's six different enzymes for that, each one giving you a different fatty acid amid linked. <coughs> and those all differ in their activity associated with apoptosis. That was the last lecture we talked about. But anyway, you make ceramide then. Ceramide can be transferred then to membranes. And so now you have either complex sphingolipid metabolism, like say in the Golgi or the ER, or you can have ceramide, acting as a signaling molecule that becomes phosphorylated by, cer- by ceramide kinases, thus making ceramide 1-phosphate, which is a very potent pro factor. Remember working through these BCL proteins I mentioned. Now, where does cysteine come in? <clears throat> okay. Back to the de novo synthesis pathway. When you make um, schwingenine from 3-keto schwingenine, that that enzyme, that reductase reaction, is, is essential to make dihydroceramide during the de novo pathway, and the dihydroceramide, remember, gets uh, goes through the degs protein and ultimately that that that, that allows then uh, for the reduction of that ser- uh, dihydroceramide to ceramide, and then ceramide carries out those reactions I just told you about with superoxide. Now going back to the production of three keto that is synthesized via the, the 3 uh, uh enzyme that takes palmitoyl-CoA and serine and makes that initial sphingolipid precursor. Now, this serine, if it's not being used for sphingolipid synthesis, could have reacted with homocysteine, okay? And if it reacted with homocysteine, Via an enzyme called cystothione beta synthase, it would make cystothione, and cystothione could be converted to cysteine. So that would pull homocysteine down to make cysteine, amino acid cysteine. Now, homocysteine itself goes through a series of reactions with tetrahydrofolate from, from, te- from 5-methyl tetrahydrofolate to tetrahydrofolate, and then there's a serine to glycine conversion making five, ten methylene tetrahydrofolate. Then there's uh, the reductase, okay, and that reductase gives you the 5 methyl tetrahydrofolate. That methyl group can be transferred to S-adenosylmethionine. and then now you have meth, uh, now you have uh, S-adenosylmethionine, which can then add methyl groups such as what is altered in. Epigenetic changes, for example, methylation of cysteine residues, or cytosine residues, excuse me, on the CPG islands and certain chromatin remodeling, which then will alter gene expression. So that's going on. There's an epigenetic factor right there. But once you add that methyl group, then you're left with 5-adenosyl homocysteine. This is all folic acid metabolism. So when you have 5-adenosyl homocysteine, it's converted to via the acidenosyl homocysteine hydrolase, that enzyme, which we've talked about in previous lectures, back to homocysteine. So if homocysteine builds up, if it builds up, it will allow the serine that otherwise would have been used to make the 5,10-methylene tetrahydrofolate, and then ultimately the methylated version, which ultimately will give you acidenosyl methionine, which will be converted to the homocysteine Remember that pathway. If you then uh, conserve the homocysteine and not use it to synthesize the amino acid cysteine, the L-serine will react with palmitoyl-CoA and will make 3-keto-svinganine, thus de novo synthesis of ceramide. So you see how that works. That's how homocysteine metabolism functioning through folic acid metabolism Particularly the methyl, the five-methyl metabolic route from the 510 methylene THF route, you're going to be using a lot of serine in those pathways. If you're not you'd be using up the serine in those pathways, because for example, folic acid deficiency, or some other deficiency in folic acid metabolism, or indeed even in cysteine biosynthesis, there's lots of enzymes involved in those reactions, <coughs> which do have. <laughs> genetic deficiencies, then you're going to make more of a ceramide. and ceramide then is going to trigger that event, which will ultimately control apoptosis. If it controls apoptosis, then you have whether or not the T cells can be activated and proliferate in the CNS. And if they're activated and proliferate in the CNS because ceramide is no longer functioning, then that's what you. That's how you end up with inflammation responses. So that's how homocysteine regulates ceramide metabolism, which regulates apoptosis. Remember, apoptosis will kill T lymphocytes, therefore disarming them so they will not hyperproliferate, hyperactivate the CNS. So that's how the two are related. Now, homocysteine accumulation has been shown in a lot of uh, neuropsychiatric and biological psychiatry literature that I've reviewed. Homocysteine accumulation is associated with psychiatric symptoms in schizophrenia, in depression, and in fact, in all kinds of other uh, neuropsychiatric disorders like dementias. Those are linked to arterial and venous occlusive diseases. Sometimes there's a damage to the vascular endothelium, and also homocysteine accumulation causes either an enhancement enhancement or an inhibition, depending on the availability of glycine, which, remember, is dependent on folic acid metabolism. Uh, you can either get inhibition or enhancement of the NMDA uh, receptor. And then that can trigger another in, uh, um, imbalance of neural transmission, leading ultimately to misfiring and... Misfiring in the central nervous system almost always then results in an inflammatory response because of the endocytosis of the receptors themselves and the turnover of those proteins. And that ultimately can also lead to then uh, damage to the central nervous system. And that is what we're trying to associate with neuropsychiatric disease. That's what these series of lectures are about. That can also be caused by vitamin B deficiencies, And we know that the vitamin uh, B deficiencies can lead to dementias and can lead directly to peripheral neuropathy. And in fact, folic acid deficiencies uh, in utero can cause development delay of the fetus. But in uh, the neonate and in adults, you can get cognitive deterioration. You can get motor and gait abnormalities. You can get behavioral and indeed full-blown psychiatric symptoms. Uh, You can get seizures. You can get demyelination. And you can get vascular dementia and even stroke and cerebral atrophy. All of that can be caused by folic acid deficiency. So now I'm trying to put together how that works. Remember, if you don't have folic acid, you don't. The metabolism of homocysteine is inhibited and homocysteine builds up and causes all that pathology I just told you about. So vitamin Db12 deficiency, which is necessary for folic acid metabolism, and folic acid deficiency, or if you have... Inactive folic acid taken in the diet, (laughs) it can compete with active folates and block that pathway, cause the buildup of homocysteine. Homocysteine then can regulate ceramide production, and then you get that whole idea about how the inflammatory response being controlled by ceramide-ceramide-1-phosphate via the BCL um, and the MCL-1 proteins we talked about at the last lecture, thus controlling. uh, outer mitochondrial membrane cytochrome oxidase release in that apoptotic pathway. All right. So, again, homocysteine is involved uh, because of the description of what I just told you about ceramide in various kinds of oxidative stresses. Those oxidative stresses can do lots of different biochemical changes. First of all, they can induce beta-amyloid production. Um, Beta-amyloid, the precursor protein can be cleaved Uh, When you then make the cleavage products of the precursor protein, you can get neuroinflammation. The neuroinflammation can lead to neurodegeneration and directly into Alzheimer's disease and vascular dementia. Homocysteine, because of oxidative stress, can also tank the activity of the protein phosphatase 2A. When that enzyme is inhibited, you get an increase in tau protein phosphorylation or tau hyperphosphorylation. That can also be induced by beta-amyloid, actually, via microtubule metabolism. Anyways, when you get tau hyperphosphorylation, you make the neurofibrillary tangle, and you get the senile plaque buildup. There's another way of getting to Alzheimer's disease uh, histopathology. Oxidative stress can also induce the activity of metallomatrix uh, proteases, Those enzymes, those metallomatrix proteolytic enzymes, can cause a degradation of the matrix. That can induce vascular inflammation. That can enter into endothelial cell disruption because of of alterations in the vascular inflammation opening up that endothelial cell system. That can lead to blood-brain barrier disruption that will allow leukocytes to enter, including those T-lymphocytes, enhancing neuroinflammatory response in the CNS, enhancing neurodegeneration, and then full-blown AD or, vas- and or vascular dementia. So again, this is that homocysteine is linked to vascular dementia. Right? Directly, because of these pathways I just told you about, and then indirectly through that ceramide pathway, controlling apoptosis of those infiltrating lymphocytes into the CNS. All right. Now, paper published in PNAS back in 2014 was talking about how this BCL2L13, this is a form of, a variant of that B-cell lymphoma protein we're talking about. That protein is a ceramide synthase inhibitor. And in fact, it's been shown in this paper, this PNAS paper from 2014 Volume one, eleven, number fifteen. That's the citation for that paper. The reason I'm bringing this in, I'm trying to give you a complete understanding of what's going on here, right? With different pathologies and different human diseases. And what I want you to do is follow a couple of these play- players: ceramide. I just introduced homocysteine, and now we're back to talking about the cell and proteins, which are which regulate apoptosis, the mitochondrial form of it. In fact, they're anti-apoptotic, right? when they bind to ceramide synthase. Remember that? (coughs) Okay. So, if you get BCL2L13, that particular splice variant, it binds to ceramide synthase, therefore inhibiting it, and that is found to be elevated in glioblastoma, and in fact, in other solid and systemic, such as blood-borne and metastatic human cancers. And so, what are those blood-borne cancers? For example, leukemia, Um, somewhere around 50,000 Americans are diagnosed with leukemia every year, and about 80,000 diagnosed with lymphoma. And that can claim a life, if you look at the statistics of it, uh, somewhere around every 10 minutes, either lymphoma or leukemia is claiming a life. So this is a very significant blood-borne oncogenic disease. And remember, that's a proliferation of leukocytes. Now, why would you get a proliferation like in glioblastoma? Remember I just told you about that. Because this BCLo BCL splice variant, B-cell lymphoma splice variant in the central nervous system, binds to ceramide synthase, inhibiting it, preventing apoptosis of the leukocytes. If you don't get apoptosis of the leukocytes, you get pro-inflammation. If it's in a vascular bed associated, for example, in neural tissue, for example, in the CNS. Okay. That's why I'm putting that together for you. Now the mechanism is that this BCL2L13, the spice variant, uh, I'm getting now nitty-gritty into the protein chemistry, has a unique C terminus, 250 amino acid sequence. That's called the BHNO domain. And that's because it's between its BH2 and its membrane anchor. And it doesn't that 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 particular unique C-terminus on that splice variant will not allow it to heterodimerize with either pro- or anti-apotally BCL proteins. And because of that, that splice variant, that one protein, can cause a disruption of the entire pathway because it does not have the appropriate domain necessary for it to interact with those other BCL proteins, which would otherwise also be interacting with the ceramide synthase. This protein likes to bind to ceramide synthase at a higher competitive level, therefore blocking that entire apoptotic pathway, therefore allowing for T cell proliferation in the central nervous system, inducing all that pathology associated with tau hyperphosphorylation, hyperphosphorylation, and the whole idea about the beta amyloid precursor protein breakdown, Uh, neuroinflammation, neurodegeneration, AD, and uh, dementia. So uh, just to uh, finish off today's lecture, a little discussion real quickly about leukemias and lymphomas. Leukemia, bone marrow, produces too many white blood cells, and they don't apoptose. Again, ceramide deficiency could be related there. So they keep dividing, and ultimately they uh, proliferate to real high levels. Lymphoma is a proliferation in the lymph gland of T and B cells. Those are lymphocytes. But you get the same consequence. You get an overproduction of immune cell lineage in the blood, leukemia, lymphoma. Unlike leukemia, lymphoma specifically affects the lymph nodes, okay? And the types are based on the origin of the cancer cells, the different types of the lymphomas, like non-Hodgkin lymphoma, things like that. The cancers are also, so they're named things like non-Hodgkin lymphomas. And they can occur when either T or B cells within that white blood cell population become abnormal. That is, they don't degrade. Hodgkin disease or originates actually with an enlarged lymph node, and uh, Hodgkin's disease is not the common non-Hodgkin's lymphoma. So I'm going to stop here because I, I wanted to just get back to the whole discussion about leukemias and lymphomas to get you back into understanding there are a lot of diseases that you wouldn't normally think of that could be linked to neurodegenerative diseases. Right now I'm t- explaining to you that cancers can be linked to it, Again, because of the hyperproliferation of T lymphocytes, T lymphocytes causing autoinflammation, autoinflammation inducing a degeneration, or neurodegeneration, ultimately leading to dementia, such as Alzheimer's disease. I'm going to stop now. We'll finish this later. I'm Dr. Gangwara, coming to you from Authentic Biochemistry Studios in the Pacific Northwest, and uh, I will just say bye for now.